Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a nutrition and exercise physiology professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens, strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. Ooh, that was short. This is Dr. Mike Wilson, a faculty <laughs> member of the Carrick Institute. <laughs> Uh, created a flex diet certification and yeah, still down in South Padre, Texas. Sweet. All right, everybody, we have a, a simple show today. It's the end of semester. I am running down here. <laughs> so, uh, we are going to cover one, uh, listener mail, uh, one piece of news about the fitness industry in general. Uh, and then we're just going to have a chat about career stages, like, you know, early, mid, late career stages and what advice we might have for, you know, the philosophy or any type of actionable things at each of these um, these stages. So I know Mike's being mistaken for a frat boy, so it's hard to call us like the Statler and Waldorf podcast. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but but we, we are kind of along those lines, you know, it's like, listen to the old guys. Um Anyway, My hair was wet, so you couldn't see all the gray hairs. There you go. There you go. <laughs> all right, let's start with the the mail. So um, I'll just withhold the name for now, but it's about protein and urinary output and renal function. So he says, "Hi, uh, I came across an interview uh, Dr. Lowry did with a website called T Nation." So he's probably not. Um, you know, deeply entrenched in the lifting subculture. But, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of lifters who don't know what the healthy nation is. So, mm-hmm. um, but where you stated that subjects in your study consumed 250 grams of protein per day and they were producing up to three liters of urine in just 12 hours. Well, let me correct that. That's three, three liters over the course of a day. Um, mm. That's a 24 hour collection, but that's a lot. That's probably about double, you know, what you normally see. It says, that led me to your paper, The Effect of Habitually Large Protein Intakes on Renal Function of Strength Athletes, an update. So he's getting down into the nitty-gritty, but he has some questions. So he says, I have an odd GI issue. Uh, I'm down to eating chicken breast, Greek yogurt, and certain cheeses. That's all I can tolerate. I'm working with a gastroenterologist to confirm a diagnosis. So sidebar, I'm I'm glad for that. That's a good idea. (laughs) Work with a gastroenterologist. But here's the thing. I now produce about 10 to 12 liters of urine per day. Um, 
There's also excess protein, protein urea, in my 24-hour urine collection. However, my random urinalysis does not show excess protein, uh, essentially in random or spot urine samples. I do seem to be experiencing polydipsia and xerostomia. So if people aren't familiar, dry, he's, just got, he's thirsty and he's got a dry mouth. Uh, but my blood glucose is usually in the 70s or 80s, so I um, have no reason to, to suspect that I have diabetes. Here's the questions. Uh, do you have any outliers in your study who produced five to six liters of urine in a 12-hour collection? Um, my, sh- my short answer to that is no. Uh, I've never seen urine outputs above about three and a half uh, liters per day. And 24-hour urine collections are really hard um, because people, they pee in the toilet and they lie to you, right? Um, mm-hmm. That sort of thing. It says, um, I'm now also seeing a nephrologist. And again, sidebar, great. Go talk to those MDs, the specialists. Uh, Here's kind of what he's getting at down at the bottom of this email. I've been looking for any research I can share with my doctor to try to understand or explain why my values are abnormal. The highest protein intake I can find in the literature was a study done by Dr. Jose Antonio. Uh, I reached out to Dr. Antonio, and he said they didn't track urine volume, perform 24-hour urine collection, or measure protein in the urine. And then he says, would you happen to be aware of any studies with a higher protein intake than Dr. Antonio's work? Now, here's what I'm going to suggest to this uh, person, a reader slash listener. I'm not even sure how much this person listens to the podcast. He might have found my email from some other ways. But I did not personally see in your email, and I may have missed it, and I apologize. But what your symptoms to me, and I am not a medical doctor, and this is not advice, but it suggests Mm -hmm. diabetes insipidus. Uh, I don't know if you're already thinking that, Mike, but so – this is the other kind of diabetes, of course, if listeners aren't familiar. It's more rare. It's not about your high blood sugar. Your body isn't making antidiuretic hormone or arginine vasopressin. So you've, you've got genetic or other reasons. You're either not making it or your kidneys aren't responding to antidiuretic hormone. And this hormone does just what you would think it does. It prevents you from just peeing constantly, right? So it, it removes the brakes on urination. In fact, when people, they go drink alcohol, right, that's one of the things you'll often hear is it suppresses ADH or AVP, same thing, and that's why you pee a lot. You know, I used to have an old endocrine prof. He used to think it was so funny, and he'd say, you only rent beer. Did you know you only rent beer? You know, because, of course, <laughs> you don't hang on to it. Here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm not I, I, just tossing it out there, but diabetes insipidus, if you go to the National Institute for uh, Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Diseases, the NIDDK, they have some good stuff in there that you might want to share uh, with your doctors and that sort of thing. Um, it could be any number of things, I suppose. I just personally have – I mean even the, the study that I mentioned in an article once about the 250 grams a day, we did that with diet logs. We did not feed them that amount, right? So it was only sort of a semi-experimental design. Um, but some of these guys, Mike, I know you still remember like when I mentioned the Beef Brothers, you know, those two guys, yeah. they would start every day by browning up like three, three pounds of meat um, and just go after it. So some of the guys did eat very high protein diets. But I don't know, Mike, if you're familiar with any literature, I mean, um, on super high protein diets and what it might be due to your urine output or other things. <clears throat> yeah, not much that I can find. I mean, not in... The realm that Jose Antonio looked at, I haven't found anything so far. I looked again this morning a little bit too. That's 
uh, replicated that. And, you know, obviously it's a good study. It's the highest intake that we have over a relatively long period of time. Like you mentioned, Lonnie, we didn't take, I mean, he didn't take those people and lock them up for months at end in a confined space, so to speak, and watch everything that they ate. So my guess, just by looking at other data, is that they're probably not at that high a level of protein, even though they probably reported that. Because um, we know people, I mean, to eat that much protein is a monster pain in the ass to do it day in and day out. And obviously, they do a lot of stuff to try to correct for that and you know everything else. But, um, you know, it is what it is. And that's the best data I've seen so far on that. There's a couple other things I pulled up on. Uh, there's a new review on the effect of high-protein diets on kidney health and longevity. This is a review in the Journal of American Society of Nephrology. And they had some interesting stuff there. I didn't see where they looked at anything that high, though. It's a problem. So when you look at a lot of health, quote-unquote, literature, high protein could be anything just over the RDA. <laughs> mm -hmm. So high protein doesn't necessarily have a, a defined amount. So yeah. you always have to check the amount that they used. Yeah. Um, and I know, yeah. So I know Jose Antonio published a review also just recently um, looking at, uh, what was it here? Uh yeah, oh, that's a 2016. I thought it was a newer one. Here it is. Uh, High-protein diets in trained individuals. Uh, this is a review from April, June 2019. Uh, Sports Medicine Journal. And again, it just looks like it's similar data to what they had before. Um, yeah, so I haven't found anything that's higher than that. I mean, you can look at, it's a little bit dated now, but it's still pretty good. International Society of Sports Nutrition, the position stand, protein and exercise, uh, 2017, that's open access. So if you want a one-stop shop of protein and exercise, that's probably a good one. Uh, obviously, Lonnie knows about the book that's out there on protein and exercise. And then the last thing, like you were saying, Lonnie, I mean, if we assume that he doesn't have any frank disease, which obviously he's got to check with an MD because something kind of weird is going on. If he's being that restrictive in diet, I would wonder about sodium intake too, because uh, he may have driven his sodium intake to mm -hmm. you know, almost exactly zero, um, and that's gonna just wreck all havoc on you know trying to hold on to any fluid and that type of thing too. So uh, if I were him, I would ask his doc about you know just to make sure he doesn't have any other frank diseases, and then you know, can he run a short-term experiment that his doc will monitor adding a little bit more sodium and seeing if that changes? Yeah, it depends on, I mean, if the chicken if the chicken he's eating is brined, and it often is, or the cheeses, right. he'd get plenty of sodium there, but it depends how much he's eating. And, you know, and that's a good point too about it's really hard. We all know, I think personally, to eat more than, you know, 200 to 250 grams of protein. Like Phil can attest, Ooh. it's not fun to eat gigantic amounts yeah. of very filling food it can be tough let me just read one uh, clip from the niddk and again i'm not i'm just this just looks suspicious to me as a non-physician but it says what is diabetes insipidus diabetes insipidus is a rare disorder that occurs when a person's kidneys pass an un abnormally large amount of urine yeah. that is insipid that is dilute and odorless in most people, the kidneys pass about one to two quarts of urine per day. Um, that's roughly on par with one to two liters, you know, maybe one and a half liters a day, whatever. Anyway, 
uh, in people with diabetes insipidus, the kidneys can pass 3 to 20 quarts of urine a day. So that's like up to 18 liters, I think. As a result, a person with diabetes insipidus may feel the need to drink large amounts of liquids. That's, that's as far as my um, guessing is going to go. <laughs> I am not diagnosing. Yeah. Um, but um, combined with the other issues, the gut issues and things like that, um, all I can say is good luck. Keep working with those physicians. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, out of all the, the things he has to follow up on and, and kind of chase down, a, a high-protein diet would be kind of at the bottom of the list of things I'd be worried about acutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a good point, and I think a lot of our listeners know, and I'm, I, Phil knows this from experience and reading literature and whatnot too, but high-protein diets generally aren't extremely damaging to your kidneys. I mean, we kind of get to the point where we've got to be really careful. You know, protein's been demonized for so long um, mm-hmm. And it's again, it's back to that article I keep threatening to write for the last decade about what may I eat? You know, <laughs> can't eat yeah. fats, can't eat carbs. Well, not can't eat protein. Well, what am I going to freaking eat? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, anyway, I'll just I'll, I'll add here at the end of this while we're on it. Uh, as far as excrement from the body goes, I have a meeting Tuesday about my tests. She wrote me the university. Uh, with my fecal exam. Oh, Sarah Campbell. And uh, yeah, so oh, she, she wrote test. me and she's like, "We have to have a meeting. Your results are super interesting." I was like, "Oh, so we lined up a meeting oh. for Tuesday." So, and she's going to go over the results. Nice. So, I will have all that. I'll take notes and have all that info for next week. That will be awesome. So, now, you were yeah, Phil. So. Can you re- remind everybody, even me, um, you were bulking and eating like an a hole? Yeah. Like <laughs> so basically, what we did was. It would have been about 14 weeks. So we took a baseline first sample and then samples as I purposely ate like an asshole and gained 40 pounds over like 14 weeks. And then samples on the way back down after I cleaned it up. So to see what my gut biome did from all the crap and then how quickly it got better. Um, Like what happened after when I went back to a clean diet the day after the meat. Um, just to see how quickly does things go? Like, where are we at baseline? How quickly do things go horrible? <laughs> and uh, how quickly do they bounce back? Or what exactly does happen? I don't know yet. So I just know the uh, the results are, quote, incredibly interesting. So, right. well, And that's you know, coming from somebody who studies poop all the time. Yeah, that's so. extreme. No, that's right. She doesn't. She probably looks at regular fitness people or gen pop. People like you need to be documented. <laughs> Free, Freaky heavyweight lifters need to be documented. <laughs> so I mean, I, I and I fully understand this. It's an N of one, but there's not many people that I think do what I did. So exactly, like not many people are like purposely. I'm going to gain forty pounds by eating freaking burritos and Cheetos. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I have yeah. to create new scales for you. You know, <laughs> new measurement scales. All right. Um, Phil, I was going to hit you with this next one uh, first. Let me just read a couple of quotes from it. Um, and then uh, Mike's input is going to be important, too, because you guys are in this world uh, way more than I am. But it says how COVID-19 has permanently changed the fitness industry. So this is by Jacqueline Davalos. Strength and Muscle Sport News. It's Bloomberg. So just sort of a you know general uh, pub. This is actually back from the end of January, so it's a couple months um, dated now. But 
it is 2021 uh, material. It says virtual classes and mental health options were turbocharged by the pandemic. Gym chain executives expect that to continue. It says after a year in which people spent months cooped up at home, essentially they were ready to go back to the gym. So the traditional January spike in memberships has matched and in some cases exceeded those of years past. And we've all talked about that before, right? The gyms flood with people. They make those some, you know, milk toast New Year's resolution um, and they head out January 1st. Most of them are gone. In fact, basically all of them are gone by Valentine's Day. But anyway, it even maybe exceeded some in some cases in years past. Uh, part of that can be tied to the predictable explosion of online classes, a move toward maintaining mental as well as physical health. Uh, here's a quote. It's not about bikini body goals because who knows when we're going to be able to go on vacation again says Josh McCarter, chief executive officer of the fitness booking platform MindBody. COVID-19 has pushed people to think about health more holistically. And then just some other quotes from here. The online shift is contributing to what experts said will be a permanent change, uh, apparently to like a hybrid model, I guess. Um, It says COVID-19 has accelerated adoption of hybrid model or online slash in-person workouts, Uh, that more brick-and-mortar gyms are likely to retain when the pandemic recedes. And then just a little uh, data here. says a November study by Club Intel of 2,000 U.S. gym members revealed that 54% of those surveyed either froze or canceled their memberships over the last year. And again, so the article goes on to kind of say that we're going to have a hybrid model with us pretty much permanently. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Phil? Because I know you're aware of different kinds of gyms. They're not all like yours, of course, but yeah. but what do you think? No, I mean, I can see that being true for many gyms, and even mine on a smaller scale. Like, I have numerous people that have just chosen to train at home, uh, and I still coach them, but and I've even lent out equipment for such. You know, I have a lot of equipment just lent out. So, I mean, I don't know. It's probably... I never even put a percentage on it, maybe 20%, you know? So, I mean, that's a nice chunk. And if you're talking a gym that needs a thousand members, you know, that they lost and they don't do what I do, you know, they literally lost them. You know, they don't do programming at home and like, here, take the freaking take our stair step and bring it home with you. you know, they're not gonna <laughs> right. That. Right. So, uh, they just lost them. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, is, will it permanently change? I think that's up for debate. I mean, I think, I don't know. I'm seeing more people that actually, you're you're seeing a lot of news come out where just what you said. Like, hey, to not get sick, you guys need to get more active. Um, so hopefully in the long run, it'll push, it'll push the opposite if the powers that be will actually start pushing that uh, and making that more common media. We're not seeing that yet, but... Uh, it's the same people in the fitness industry are saying that, but I mean, how big is our, how big is my voice in retrospect to <laughs> mass media? It's tiny. So, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we've seen a shift and I don't see it coming. I think the people that are just super afraid are going to stay super afraid for a long time and probably stay at home and do more things at home. But as long as people are still moving, I don't care. <laughs> you know, it doesn't affect me that much. Uh, so, yeah, because like I said, I just train them at home then. OK, let's make adjustments. What do you got? OK, we're doing that. So. OK, 
That's not what I expected from you, Phil. I thought you'd say we have such a tight knit team environment. People just want to be in person, you know. Well, um, most of them do, but I mean, like I said, eighty percent of them do. Mm-hmm. But we have some that are like, "Man, that's I'm afraid," and that, yeah. I'm like, "Oh, that's fine." You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit there and belittle them, and I'll be like, "Okay, let's make an adjustment." Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, is that does that work? I mean, is it working for you? Are you getting success as a coach, or do you feel frustrated that they're on the other side of a monitor? You know. No, I mean it works. Uh, it depends on the athlete. Like, like I just I don't coach Olympic lifting hardly at a distance. It's too hard. Uh, you need that if that sport. Like, in general, you need to be right there, right then, making calls on the second. So, because mm-hmm. there's so many little things that can happen in a in one point two seconds. Skill, yeah. <laughs> that one's so hard to coach at a distance. I mean, you can do it, but it's just not as, in my opinion, it's not as good. Um, but like my strongman people and stuff like that, especially ones that have, I, I'm lucky. The majority of my clients have been with me like at a minimum average of like three, four years. I know what the hell they're doing. I know how they move. I know what we need to fix. Um, whereas with a new person, that's a little, you know, we need more videos and stuff like that. But, and it's, I'd much prefer be on site with them. Uh, cause again, I can just fix things in real time. Not okay. Next week, try this. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're saying I fucked up this whole week? Right. <laughs> That's a hell of a lag. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah. I mean, I think I think it'll all pan out, man. Especially a facility like mine. Uh, we won't have a hundred people in there at once. It just doesn't happen. And I have enough space where we can stay spread out. We can, you know, even if you are nervous, go on the other side of the room. Yeah. You know, right. Right. Stay over there and grab the wipes and wipe it down when you're done. So, or and before you start. But there's definitely been a hit. I've seen a hit, not as much so in gyms like mine. Um, luckily. So yeah. When I was reading about this, I even heard that in the UK, uh, just in the past uh, couple of weeks, if we have any UK listeners who want to comment, but that they're pretty much finally reopening. Uh, fitness centers, you know, non-essential things. Um, I don't know. I, I, it did make me wonder. I think there's a lot of mental health in like a powerlifting gym. And I know you, you train athletes, Phil and Mike, you've got all kinds of client fitness athletes and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, the mental health side, I can see quite a bit, the holistic overall general health, like, like you've said, Phil, and I know Mike agrees, like at a very elite level, these guys aren't about trying to bring their blood pressure down a few points. That's not why they're training their ass off, you know, or change their blood lipid profile necessarily. Um, but I could see a lot of people doing that. I would think people are chomping at the bit after doing, oh, yeah. you know, video calisthenics in their living room. Um, or even if you've got um, a gym, not everybody has commercial gyms literally that they own like you two guys. But yeah. – um, Mike, what about you as far as do you think are we heading into a more holistic and hybrid model from here on out or what? I would hope so. I mean, my hope is that people will actually start taking their health and fitness more serious. I, I'm probably more on the negative side and I don't know if they will. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I just see it becoming more polarized. Uh, the people who are into it are still going to be into it and are excited to get back into the gym. And I think gyms will, once they open, uh, especially I've got a couple of clients in the UK. So I think some of their gyms opened last week. And then Canada, I've lost track of up there. 
they closed, up there per they se. They closed back down Thursday. I know because they were open. They were. I just oh. I told my clients up there a couple months ago. I'm like, just tell me what's going on. We'll just yep. change it. I I can't keep track. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. It's just got to be crazy. So I think that'll probably stay polarized. Unfortunately, um, I was kind of hoping initially when this all started that ooh, this will be a really big driver for people to get healthier. But eh, maybe not. Uh, hopefully though, I do think that the hybrid model depending on how you define it will be around longer i've i mean i full disclosure i'm a fan of that because i have an online certification that talks about recovery metrics and nutrition and you know all that kind of stuff and for like three and a half years i've been telling clients and trainers especially that hey even if you own a gym and you have some interest in nutrition or you have an employee that has an interest in nutrition just do all your nutrition offline like do it asynchronously. You don't have to do it at the same time. And then if something happens, at least you have some platform already set up. And if you want to add training to it, great. If you don't, you know, whatever. So at least you have something. Um, and, you know, some people have been real receptive to that and other people, hmm, not so much, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and I get it. It's a lot more time. It's effort. It's, it's work. But I think in the future for people, for fitness people, I would say in general to stay relevant, I think it's gonna shift to a more holistic model of, you know, hey, we've got a team that'll do your nutrition, we'll write your training. If you go on vacation, we'll give you a bodyweight workout to do. You know, we'll look at maybe your sleep metrics, HRV, all this stuff. I mean, obviously I'm biased because I've been doing this for like a decade, but, I think that's going to be more of the future model. And again, you're not trying to overstep. You're not trying to be, you know, their MD or anything like that. But for anything that's in the health area, I think having the more one-stop shopping, lifestyle change, that type of stuff, if it's done correctly, unfortunately, most of the time I see it kind of bastardized. I think if it's done correctly, it can be super helpful and gives you the flexibility as a trainer to go from in-person, online, offline, different gym. Ooh, I've only got a pair of dumbbells now. Okay. Um, and that way the client is staying with you the entire time and not dropping off saying, Oh, my gym closed. Oop, I'm going to ghost you for like three months and just eat beer and Cheetos. And then, well, fix me when I come back. <laughs> fix me. <laughs> well, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I think me and you at least are kind of lucky in, we were doing this before this happened. Like oh, I was, yeah, people go on vacation. I'd send them training for that. People do this. Exactly. I'd send this. I was used to it already. Yeah, you know, so mm -hmm. um, it wasn't a big shock to me. So no. I was like, oh, okay, it let's just keep rolling. Yeah, so I mean, and I gained, oddly enough, I gained like three clients the last week and a half at the gym. So yeah, I'm, nice. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we're mm -hmm. seeing an upswing, but um, this echoes what you guys are saying. A lot of what I see in academia. I mean, um, the, the universities that understood, you know, simple class management systems or, or even yep. just old school ones that have been around a long time and are, but have kept current, you know, Blackboard and D2L and all this kind of stuff. Not a problem. I mean, <laughs> I told the students the other day, I've been teaching online now literally longer than you've been alive. These Remember, some of my students now were born after the year 2000. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. <laughs> so – Anyway, let me, let me offer this because you guys could tell me if, if you think this fits with fitness. This is from the Chronicle of Higher Education. This is about students and they, do they want 
in person or hybrid or online. It says Gen Z prefers face-to-face instruction. 72% of students want in-person learning. 25% now want hybrid and only 2% want purely online. Is that what do you, Mike, you do you probably are the most remote in the way you work. Do you think that's about right? 72% like in person, 25% hybrid, 2% online? Or do you think that doesn't doesn't fit fitness people cuz they're adults with schedules and you know? I think it really depends upon the age. I have Older clients, you know, it's like I teach for Kerrigan. Most of them are been working for many, many years and have decided to go back to school. And the only way they can do it is for have it to be 100% online. Um, but when I was teaching for Globe and I taught for St. Thomas and other places for a while, it seemed to me that younger students preferred in person. And even when I get questions now, my first question is, you know, how do you learn best? Like some people have to show up in class, have to have hard deadlines. They can't seem to manage themselves otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, some people prefer it just because that's how they're accustomed to learning. Other people want to do stuff asynchronously and are fine watching video lectures. Other people will never sit down and watch a video lecture if their life depended upon it. Um, so I think it really depends on the person and the age. My guess is that uh, younger students probably would prefer more in-person. That's kind of what I've seen. That may just be purely a schedule logistics thing, um, though. I have had a few even uh, people I train that have you know just dropped everything and gone back to college full-time. Uh, a couple of them have done that now uh, in-person, um, which they actually preferred in-person training for that, for teaching. I think for academic institutions, it's going to be super interesting because... I don't know if you can get $50,000 a year to only do online training. You know, I think in some niche areas, I think you can. But for, you know, a four-year Bachelor of Arts degree undergrad, yeah, I don't know if that's going to (laughs) stay. No, times are changing. I mean, it's hard to – I mean, this does – this. now, you're right. This is, like I said, Gen Z. So these are 18 to Mm 24-year-olds. And you could say 72% want in person, but – I'm also stricken by this 25%. They choose hybrid as number one. Um, yeah. So that's. I thought it would be higher. Yeah. So 25%. But, you know, and yet in, you know, many years past, I don't know. It, to me, online teaching used to be a novelty, you know, and you're right. The students who gravitated toward it were the ones who could shoo the roommates out of the room, put some headphones on and just have the discipline. It's a different kind of discipline than just plopping your butt down yeah. in a classroom. But what strikes me about you two guys is this isn't just knowledge you're imparting. It's skills. Like, yeah. you know, there's there's physical, like, now you. Uh, you can't just passively sit there. And I know some classrooms have labs and, and activities and whatnot. But um, I would argue overall fitness has a much more uh, physical, mm-hmm. well, by definition almost, component where – you know, it'd be a little bit harder just to do that. Like you said, Mike, here's, here's a video. I, I've heard professors say, oh, that's all low-hanging fruit. They'll consume all that stuff automatically. Then when you just have come to class and you talk about it. I'm like, that's not mm. low-hanging fruit for everybody, you know. No. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't agree with that. But. Yeah. And I think in the, the, the fitness world, you're seeing people now who are like, oh, I'm going to go into fitness and I'm going to be an online trainer only. I'm never going to work with someone in person. And to me, I still think that's a terrible idea. 
Um, and the only reason I was able to transition online, I transitioned to online in 2006, and it was a complete clusterfuck. It was a disaster. <laughs> and it was because I didn't have enough reps teaching people in person to know how they're going to screw everything up. Yeah. <laughs> like, I couldn't imagine you screwed up a squat like you did, you know. So I had to go back and, you know, go to the gym, train people at a gym, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, train people in my garage for a while before I transition back to online to have half an idea of, you know, what works, what doesn't work, how do you cue people? And, and even now, which this year we'll do a couple more private things. We didn't do any really last year, but the year before we did, or just have people, you know, flying for a weekend and we, you know, coach them and still get some practice that way too. So I think for trainers, I think online you can probably get away doing some nutrition and some recovery stuff. I think that's probably fine if you're, you know, well-educated or use a good system, but for the movement components, I don't think there's ever anything that's going to replace just the skill set of having a person in front of you and being able to cue them or walk them through exercise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can um, – I can only imagine you are sort of a pioneer. You said 06. I mean the resources available yeah. to you then were just not what they are now, horrible. you know. From I'm trying to get a video even from a, when those little flip cams came out, that was the coolest mm-hmm. thing ever. Yeah. Holy crap, we could almost get a grainy video easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Okay, um, let's go ahead and go to break. Uh, we'll come back. We're just going to talk about career stages and uh, the philosophies that, as they might change as you age, you know, and then some actionable things that might feed that philosophy for a young person or, or you know, mid-career or, or even late career. So Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. Over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, In about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. 
Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Alrighty, we're back. It's Mike and Phil and Lonnie, and we are just going to talk about um, career stages and the philosophies. You know, do they change? What what might be a successful philosophy for an early career? And I, we need to be careful too, because I'm thinking early career might be somebody in their twenties, but you could be early career and be 38 years old. You know, so um, oh, yeah. there is that caveat too. Uh, let's start with early career, though. Uh, Phil, what do you think about what what's usually a good philosophy for an early career person? Um, and then how might they act on that philosophy? Uh, for just training? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, for example, like I remember you used to say uh, – I should probably give you more background. So like you'd say – People train almost abusively when they're young, and yeah. the, and it, it's almost unavoidable. And maybe they should. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, that's and that's where I was going to go. Probably, I lean towards with my newer people uh, more frequent training, and you know, just because uh, they're learning a lot. Like we're not doing a ton of damage at the beginning because they just can't. <laughs> you know, we got to learn how to do it. So the more frequent we can go, the better. And then, like, I have a guy now that, you know, he just reached, uh, he missed 505 on deadlift. So he's at, like, 490. Um, And uh, he's like, okay, so what do I need to do now? Do we need to, like, do I need to open my schedule so I can go six or seven days a week? I was like, no, dude, it's the opposite. You know, we're actually getting to the point where you're getting strong enough that you need to recover more um, if we're going to be pushing things. And uh, so early on, you know, honestly, as frequent as I can get. And yeah, that's usually four days a week just because life. But, I mean, even if we can do more than that, I have stuff we can do um, and get a little more, a lot more volume, a lot more things like that. And just we're trying to because you don't have a weak point. You're just weak. So yeah. <laughs> we're trying to get everything up. And that just takes time and volume. Mm-hmm. So the more we can do early on, the better. Um, and honestly, the nutrition stuff at the beginning is – just simple. It's, it's literally don't eat like an asshole. Yeah. So we don't yeah. need to complicate things. You <laughs> suck. You know, you suck. So if we just get you eating like an adult, hey, we're great. You know, eat like an adult and train often. So uh, it would be if you, you wanted to put a tagline on beginners. Right. I love that, Phil. I, the whole eat like an adult. <laughs> I, I, can't, I don't know if you or Mike said that first, but I am totally going to steal that in the classroom. <laughs> it, that, so. that sums it up. Right. Eat <laughs> yeah. Like an adult. How about a little variety and occasional fruit or vegetable? You know? Yeah. So it's that's um, funny. Then that, that'd be the way to sum it up for beginners. I mean, you, I really can't. The whole overtraining thing was overblown. It's really it's real hard to overtrain a, a newbie. <laughs> yeah. they, they just physically can't do enough damage to jack themselves up. Uh, so, yeah. And, you know, if you are if you are indeed in your 20s at that stage. I, I, good point about, you know, you're literally not pushing gross loads that put you at extreme risk, 
you know, yeah. like like you said, you start teetering on a four ninety five hundred ish deadlift. Okay, now you know you're starting to move into weights that are enough. That's going to just put different kinds of loads and tensions on yeah. your joints and uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the only thing I could I would think about that too is I, I knew a lot of guys. This is more bodybuilding specific, I guess, physique specific. But eat like an adult, yes, but you got to keep it coming. Like the guy, don't panic over. Oh my God, I'm I might lose my abs. Well, you're really screwing yourself there. You know. Yeah. Yes, you are. Um, There's a whole lot of people that have gone into that side of things. That just they're they're so worried about their abs, and it's like, dude, you need to gain like eighty pounds of muscle. Like eighty, yeah. <laughs> 80. <laughs> That's good. Right. To get where you need to go, you know, you're six foot and one hundred and fifty-seven pounds. Uh, you're gonna lose them. We need if you ever want to get there, you're gonna lose them. So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And even off season, even bodybuilding gains. I can tell you, we've told stories on the podcast in the past. The guys who tried to stay ripped. There was a, a gym owner I'm thinking of specifically. He looks great, and he still does at 155 pounds. Right, a grown yeah. ass man. So, yes. <laughs> uh, and meanwhile, a lot of the other guys who did sort of the bulk cut and then just cut for contests. You know, these guys are literally 50 pounds heavier than this dude now. Now. Do, Hey, you know what? If that's your goal, that's fine. But if you're, you know, desperate for uh, muscle mass, I mean, to me, bodybuilding is about building. It's not body wasting. Um, so, yeah, I would. Yeah. The, the trick, I think, is how do you balance that? Eat like an adult. But really, you got to eat a lot, you know, a lot of that. Um, and there are lots of ways you could do that. You know, avocados and glug olive oil on your stir fry veg and meat at, at dinner time. And, you know, there are ways to get the calories up. You know, weight gainer shakes, sure. You know, you're, you're doing something purposeful and progressive for your body. Um, stuff like that. But, uh, Mike, what about you? Um, early stage, what might be a philosophy that you would, you know, espouse and, and something they might act on? Yeah, similar to Phil, I'm... I'm a huge fan of frequency of training, even for more advanced athletes. It just looks really different. Um, the first question I'll ask is, okay, how much time do you have to get to the gym and how many days can you do it? Okay, if you can only make it there four days, that's cool. Can you take a half hour to do anything else at home? Do you have any equipment at home? Do you have a couple kettlebells, a TRX, body weight, whatever? Um, part of it, too, initially is... With beginners, I just want to make sure they get in the habit of doing something, ideally, six, seven days a week. Uh, what that is will be different. You know, they may be just doing cardio only Tuesday, Thursday, which is pretty popular with a lot of the programs I write. Um, but I think that just gets them in the habit of, okay, I have an hour each day. I'm going to dedicate, you know, to doing this. And like, like Phil said, I think you can't really beat them up too badly just because they probably can't recruit enough to run into issues um i do pay attention to their feedback on how it feels obviously videos and form more so on form less on their verbal feedback where i'd say with advanced athletes it's probably the inverse of that and you know just making sure everything you know looks good obviously if they have any pain or anything like that we'll adjust stuff on the nutrition side you know very simple you know for when i did the flex diet cert shameless plug the first one is protein because it's got a lot of physiologic impact and most people with some education can eat more protein it's not too hard uh, if you go to the other end of the spectrum and talk about sleep there's tons of physiologic reasons people should sleep but 
man, trying to get an extra hour of sleep out of someone, you'd, I'd rather pound my head against the wall at this point because at the end of the day, it's a value judgment on their life of like, oh, so you're saying I can't watch Netflix for an hour at night and I'm supposed to go to bed? Like, well, yeah, but oh, that sucks. But um, <laughs> so protein's usually easier. Uh, micronutrition is usually also a pretty big gain. Just take a seven-day diet log. You can do the old school, just scan it for colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily Skittles or Fruit Loops, but actual <laughs> right. colors. And if there's like very few colors in there, or you could get fancy and start looking for fiber content and magnesium, stuff like that. But if there's really not many colors, then it's like, okay, maybe you should add some mixed berries on this day or add some spinach or broccoli or, you know, whatever. Just simple things like that. I may even give them just a particular color. Okay, go find all the green veggies you can eat this week. How many can you eat? All right, so it's very simple, usually very, you know, habit-driven. Rarely is it just a eat-your-macro type approach. Right. Uh, Mike, would you say it's an inverse relationship, uh, frequency versus years training? Like, would you have people train less as they become really advanced? Like, you know, if they're moving huge weights as a power lifter, or do you try to find ways to keep the frequency up and just compensate on the recovery side somehow or or what are your thoughts on that yeah my bias even with more advanced athletes is still high frequency Mm -hmm. but it looks completely different right so they may have a main lift but i may cycle through uh different loads and they may be doing more easy cardio days, like Tuesday, Thursday, normally it's going to be an easy cardio day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, maybe lifting. But Monday may be more strength-focused, and then Tuesday, I'm thinking of one guy in particular, Tuesday is just easy cardio, 30 minutes, you know, moderate cardiac development. Wednesday is more of a almost a bodybuilding-ish, dude bro, upper body type day. Uh, Thursday may be some pretty heavy painless intervals friday is the off day saturday is a kind of a squat accessory day and sunday is just kind of a hybrid day um so that's something i would do for a more advanced athlete and then we would watch their hrv and see if they're uh, continuously plummeting you know 24 hours after some hard intervals you know and they can put out you know 600 plus watts on a rower for even you know 30 seconds We'll move their off day to the next day, and then we'll see how they can do on a lower body day on, you know, two, 48 hours later. Mm-hmm. If it's still not feeling so good, then we're going to adjust stuff again. So my bias is to kind of play with stuff and move things around. And it's still like a higher frequency, especially for natural lifters, because I, I just think that the results are a little bit better, but it's, it's more tricky. You, have, you can easily torch someone if you don't know what you're doing. And the last part I do, too, is I'll look at all this stuff I want them to accomplish during the week. And then for especially intermediate lifters, I'll just take that and I'll split it out over the entire week. So I don't do a lot of heavy uh, Monday is chest day with seven sets of chest, right? I'll maybe if someone is more physique orientated and they're really trying to work on their chest, I'll be like, okay, maybe Monday is dumbbell pressing. Wednesday is more overhead pressing with accessory stuff. Thursday, we're going to do some, you know, dips. And then Saturday, we're going to do some other accessory stuff too. So I'm thinking about how much can I spread that volume out over the course of the week instead of jumping it all onto Monday. And then they're sore as heck for like three or four days. But when Monday comes again, I find that 
the quality that they can put out in the later sessions, especially sets, isn't as good compared to just taking that amount of stress and just kind of spreading it out over the course of the week. Interesting, yeah. Uh, Phil? I think if you're super advanced, you can get away, like, dropping a ton of stuff in one day and then allowing seven days to recover. Um, But just in my experience, I haven't found a lot of people who can do well with that approach. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about mid-career versus uh, advanced, Phil. Would you differentiate those a lot? I mean, or at that stage, is it just sort of like the Eddie Cohn, just don't get hurt, you know? I mean, what are your thoughts about mid versus advanced, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say there's a difference. Like, I'd say the the person I was just talking about would be coming into mid, mid stages of his career. And, uh, yeah, we just start learning more about the importance of recovery, the importance of diet. We don't, we don't push things to the brink as often. Um, so it's more purposeful in our training. So as far as percentages and things like that, uh, we might have longer between max tests like early on hell we can freaking get a PR every other week you know mm-hmm. and it's teaching them okay now it's going to be you know we're going to test them quarterly and and things like that we got to have there's more time between big jumps you, you guys know i mean early on you're just crushing things like you're literally stronger the next week so and a lot of that's just neural that's gone those days are gone you know at mid stages <laughs> so you got to get them to be a little more uh patient and things like that so um, that'd be the biggest thing, I think, is just getting a little more purposeful with your your choices and as far as training goes, and you know, maybe we start paying a little more attention to diet. And then I'd also say that stage is where most people stay. Ninety nine percent of the population yeah. stays there. There's a lot of people that think they're advanced, and you're sorry, bro, you're not. Interesting. <laughs> you yeah. don't need the super <laughs> special training. Um, and then once you get in that advanced stage, things get. Well, I guess we'll get there, but uh, yeah. so I'll, I'll hold that off. But probably just a little more personal training and longer between, uh, longer between max tests or any kind of testing day, and probably a little more focus on nutrition if they're open to that. More focus on recovery and just not being hurt. So uh, listening to your body, you know, kind of finding that vocabulary with your body a lot more. Yeah, that you know that's actually a really good one. Just the sort of just um, being able to sense things yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. Ages ago, we did an episode called "The Intangibles," I think, and it's just like you know, Mike's uh, monitoring HRV and things like that. You get a nice objective thing. You, you get some nice psychological, like subjective markers, like my appetite is down or my motivation to train just isn't there, Coach. You know, or yeah. or whatever. But yeah, you, you start to. You do start to feel your body. We've all talked about there's rare. It's rare, I think. But times where you walk in the gym, you're like, nope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. do one set. You're like, you, you know what? Just I'm going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. I, I, something is screaming in the back of my subconscious. Leave, you know. Yeah. Um, and new people just, I mean, like I, I loved this week because I had the two new people. And like they are new to training. So I got to blabber and talk so much, and my, my people that have been with me are like, shut up, I know. <laughs> I got to talk about all kinds of cool things. And they have, like, literally they have no vocabulary with their body. They have none. And talking about they don't know the difference between sh- strain and pain and things like that. And mm-hmm. they just they need to gain that ability. Mm-hmm. You know, early on, it's, it's on me. 
as the coach. Like, nope, you got another four in you. You know, and just I have to be mentally strong for him. Whereas you start getting that medium stage and it's more me saying, OK, no, stop. That looks like shit. Mm-hmm. You know, they, so, uh, yeah, things like that. So there's there's little differences. Yeah. You can't pedal for them. You're still you're still the training wheels, maybe as the coach, you know, keeping them from completely yeah. falling over, you know, going off the rails, so to speak. But yeah, they, uh, it's like, yeah, oh, you're not new anymore. Stop. You're just going to hurt yourself. Right. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. begin. They're gaining the ability, at the mid stage, to literally hurt yourself with loads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're starting to gain that ability to push so hard you can break something. So yeah, but. yeah. They're definitely learning. I think would be a big key in mid career. Like you, you got you have to keep that mind, that learner's mind. You can't just start feeling like you said. Like you, you think you're advanced. Yes. Um, and you know, because there's a lot of nuance. I mean, what's that old? I think it was Beethoven. He said, "Don't only practice your art, but delve into its secrets." That's mm. you. You move more and more toward these, the fine scale. You know what a beginner w- what would be minutia to a beginner. Now it becomes the game. You're massive. You're strong enough to tear stuff. Mike, what about you? Mid career versus late. Any thoughts there? Yeah, similar to what Phil and you guys were saying. I put a lot more emphasis on soft tissue stuff, whether if they can get, do their own yeah, activation, soft tissue work. Uh, we'll do some loading of collagen beforehand with a small amount of vitamin C, usually 15 grams collagen. Maybe use vitamin C, maybe not. The research on that's pretty split. You can look up stuff from uh, Dr. Keith Barr, Dr. Shaw, and do some like isometrics. My buddy Jake Torres got a lot of great videos on that. And that'll be kind of part of their warm-up after they do some RPR activation. And then them just paying attention to more feedback and then setting up little experiments based on their feedback to see if their feedback is correct or not. I think that's a way they can kind of learn to to trust their feedback. Uh, a lot of times it's getting them to do more recovery, not necessarily stimulation, or do a different type of recovery. And maybe cutting their volume in half that maybe dropping in an aerobic day, you know, do some soft tissue stuff. It depends on what's going on. So that's what I find is probably the big difference. And then normally at this point, they're pretty bought in. So getting them to do a few other extra things is relatively easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, I'm biased, but I'll do more of the physiologic flexibility stuff. Can you get some cold exposure? Do you have a way of getting hot uh, sauna exposure? We'll do more polarized training with a very low level uh, aerobic stuff on one day, but very high level output uh, in you know high intensity interval training, which has been bastardized. But you know, kind of lactate type based work if it's needed. Um, yeah, so more things in things in that area just to make them more of a robust individual. And usually they're older at this point, and normally uh, health is a higher priority, and they've already kind of bought into that. Oh, yeah, if I can just keep getting in the work day in and day out consistently without getting injured, without having pain and feel good, then that's going to be the the fastest way to get there. Mm -hmm. I love the experimental stuff that you're talking about, right? Because it's like serial case studies. Introduce something, remove it, introduce it, remove it. Um, Because let's face it, I think for beginners, basic training principles are going to reign, right? Meaning, you know, overload. Um, reversibility, diminishing returns. 
But then as you go further, it's not these universal truths. It's almost like exercise genetics or nutrigenetics. Like what about this dude or gal, um, you know, and what makes them unique maybe? Yeah. A, a simple one I'll do for especially more physique athletes is, you know, are you more on the heavier lifting to make progress or can you do more higher rep kind of bro type stuff? So we'll have them do uh, like a guy I'm thinking in particular, you know, he could do a three RM, you know, five fifty trap bar deadlifts with good form. Have him do some accessory stuff after, looked his HRV for forty eight hours, and it would just tank every time. But he could go to the gym and brutalize himself, natural lifter, with thirty to forty thousand pounds of volume and come back and do it again the next day. You know, he kept getting broke because the programs he had were more power lifter-ish based heavy lifting he's a super strong dude um, but his recovery just kept tanking um, where i've got other people that are you know even advanced are super volume intolerant for whatever reason um, so just even trying to figure out what end of the spectrum to kind of program them you know makes a big difference too yeah i don't know maybe yeah. you've seen something similar phil yeah no i agree yeah i mean everybody's a little different but i mean you know my difference in general with advanced people would be that's where we really need to throttle them back and percentages kind of go out the window, yeah. especially if we're talking powerlifting and pure strength sports. Like I'm gonna, not going to ask a 900 pound squatter to do 10 sets of three at 80 percent. It ain't happening. Right. You know, there's, right. I remember that uh, when when Chad Waterbury's article came out, like Dave Tate and Jim went all them. Oh, you're fucking crazy. We're not doing that. You know, and uh, yeah, it, it's just dumb. So uh, things things like that get interesting at the high level. Um, is just you're a very aware of you know the loading you're doing on a daily basis, and there's a lot more times. Okay, we just need to back off, and you know we can get a lot of work done at fifty percent and things like that. So whereas you know if I have a new person doing fifty percent, it's nothing. They're not going to even they don't have the load to make advancements aside from cardiovascular. You know, because, you know, you get to the advanced stage. The biggest difference in advanced stage is at that point, in my opinion, you are just neurally as sufficient as you're going to get. Like those are the people that they can they can explode themselves if they want to. Mm -hmm. We can just load it up and they will push till they just pop. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> They're mentally and physically just that strong now. Um, and that's something you have to learn at the advanced stage is just when to. You start getting smart enough to, okay, call it. You know, I'm going to make this lift, <laughs> but at what cost? Yeah. You know? And uh, so, and I've been through that. I got blown stuff. And it's yep. from me just not listening. And so. You know, I like that a lot. Like, in, in, the metaphor I've always thought of was dragster. You're tending to a dragster now, mm -hmm. right? They're yeah, ba cool. You have to baby those. They are absolute performance kings. Mm -hmm. But you got to baby them or they're going to blow to your point. Like, yeah. what's the cost? I, th I would think that's the differentiator with the really like the some of the world class people you guys train. What's the cost here? Right. Yeah. And um, it's getting them to back off. That's the biggest thing you have to do with with elite athletes. That's the hardest thing. It's nope. Stop. We're done. Right. You know? yep. <laughs> You've had enough. You know, yeah, I got another one. More. I got another yeah, one. Coach. They want more. And it's like, nope, we don't need it. Save it for the save it for the event. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, yeah. And I find with advanced athletes, I don't work with a ton of advanced athletes, but when I do, it's usually more in a 
specialized capacity. Like I've done hands-on work and, you know, NFL, NHL people. I've looked at some blood work for health parameters with some top baseball players and just recently a top uh, UFC mixed martial artist, that kind of stuff. And what I find with people at the highest, highest level is my first question is who is coordinating all of this? Because a lot of times there's way too many cooks in the kitchen and it's a disaster. And the athlete is stuck in the middle trying to kind of figure stuff out. And that's just kind of a mess, you know. So if you've got more than a couple coaches or, you know, doctors or PTs or whoever professionals you're working with, my first question is, okay, who's coordinating all of them? And do they have enough background to know what they know and not know what they know to make sure that, everything is coordinated and going in the right direction. You're not pulling in one direction here and then one direction there. Mm-hmm. Cause like what Phil said is it's like the dragster. You want the dragster to start here and end at the end of the track. If it veers a little bit off course, it's, it's not good for performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I watch you on the field, not on the sidelines hurt. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, because high-level athletes, they'll expend all sorts of effort. It's not a question of effort, and that's not mm-hmm. going to be your rate limiter. It's, you know, are you doing this thing here? Is that helping the end goal, or is it just taking away their, their time? Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Like new people, you need them going balls out all the time. Yeah. Mediocre, yeah, we do it still sometimes. Like new people or advanced lifters, like we literally only turn the go switch on in an event. That's the only yeah. like max. That's when you go max. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the only time. So it's interesting what you guys are saying about who's coordinating. Um, like D one, uh, like sports nutrition. I, I made the mistake early on. I would kind of give my pitch to the teams, and then I started realizing very quickly the coach is going to coordinate this. Right? Um, I can't be espousing philosophies that are completely contrary right. to the to the coach. So I would have a, always have a meeting first and be like, "So, what do you think about this? Or what kind of yeah. message?" And <laughs> and not because you're going to just um, talk tail and do what they want, but you can mesh it a little bit better. You know, encourage the recovery. Like if he's overtraining the the shit out of him or something, you know, how do you help a little bit? But yeah, there is that kind of coordination. But with individuals like outside of college sports or maybe like a professional sport like a you know NFL or NBA or something, that's a really good question. Like who actually has the steering wheel here to coordinate all this? Because you could have your your sports psych person at odds with your nutritionist, at odds with the strength coach, at odds with the main coach. You know, um, could be a real mess. Yeah, and I won't name any names, but especially mm. high certain high level organizations will vary one end to the other there's some high level organizations even in the nfl that are very lots of cooks in the kitchen and it can kind of work and there's other ones that are the other extreme of we don't want anything new and you probably want to be somewhere in between and then even on that if you've got high level star performer players they will probably get away with doing whatever they want in the off season (laughs) which may or may not be beneficial Okay. Well, I think we're out of time. Yep. All right, fellas. Squat. Yep. See you later, guys. Yep. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the 
bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.